Good evening. This is Ian Bizek. I'm the host of Bizek on Stocks. I'm happy to have you all here with me tonight. As a reminder, nothing here is investment advice. Everything here is for education and entertainment purposes only. And before we get in too far into it, I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and hope everyone is staying safe. I know uh, COVID's picking up again, and given the topic tonight with airports, a lot of people are traveling. I hope people are staying safe, and I don't want anything I say tonight to come off flippant in regards to travel or the, the recovery in the aviation industry. I know there's still a lot of people out there that are having a rough time right now. People are sick. People's friends and family are sick, and I don't want to make light of that, but Hey, we're investors. We need to see the world as the opportunities that will be there going forward. Uh, and so, yeah, just want to say that. Hope everyone's having a happy holiday, staying safe, staying well. Thank you for making the time to be here tonight. I know folks are busy, so let's get into it. Uh, I want to say off the top that this will primarily be about the South American, uh, sorry, the Latin American airports. Um, but for people that are curious, there are publicly traded airports in Europe, in Asia, and in Australia uh, and New Zealand. I have previously owned the airport in Auckland, uh, and I know people that have owned the airport in Sydney. I believe Shanghai is publicly listed, Beijing's listed, the airports in Thailand are listed. Uh, and then, yeah, in Europe, you've got uh, some in Spain, some in Germany. So there's a lot of opportunities out there. Uh, and so I, I will be covering the ones that I own personally tonight, and they're the ones I know the most about, but uh, this is uh, not all of them that are out there, uh, just to be clear. And for disclosure's sake, uh, my largest position among the airports is Pacifico, and then OMAB, and then uh, CAP, and then ASR Smallest, and I also own call options on OMAB. So that's uh, just the, the disclosure off the top. Okay, so let's define the universe of those four stocks. There's Pacifico, or PAC, which is, I would argue, the most diversified Mexican airport operator, primarily known for Guadalajara, Tijuana, uh, Puerto Vallarta, and Cabos. Uh, you have OMAB, which the full name is Centro Norte, but I'll call it OMAB tonight. Uh, and it's known primarily for Monterrey, and then for industrial airports along the border, so stuff like Reynosa, Ciudad Juarez, uh, yeah, things along the border, but Monterey is more than half their traffic. Uh, ASR is Sureste, uh, that's most known for Cancun, which is obviously the tourist mecca. They also own San Juan, Puerto Rico, Medellin, Colombia, and then a variety of other airports in uh, Mexico. And then the final one, CAP, is the new player on the block. It just IPO'd in 2018. It hails out of Argentina. Well, technically, its headquarters is in Luxembourg, but its primary assets are in Argentina. Uh, but it's a global operator. I believe it's in eight countries. You've got airports in Italy, Brazil, Armenia, Ecuador, uh, Peru, uh, and Uruguay. And, uh, but its primary assets are the Buenos Aires airports. It owns both of those. Uh, so that gives you the overview and what, uh, what I'll be presenting on. I'll give you the rundown on why airports in general are a good asset class and then kind of give you the elevator pitch for each of those, and then kind of the risks and common questions that I get uh, regarding these investments. I've owned shares of OMAB and Pacifico uh, PAC since 2016, ASR since 2017, and CAP since 2019. So I've been covering these stocks for years. I uh, bought more during the pandemic, thankfully, because they've recovered quite a bit since then, and continue to like them going into 2022 and beyond. 
So why airports? Uh, the first thing I'd say is people tend to like aviation as a global long-term megatrend. Airline traffic has traditionally grown at about three times global GDP over the past 40 years. And so if you're looking for a way to play the rising wealth of the world, aviation has been a good trend to do that. Uh, however, uh, just owning, you might think, so I should buy airlines uh, if if air travel is growing that quickly. However, airlines are a very difficult industry. Uh, it costs a ton of money to buy the planes. You have fixed contracts with your pilots, your flight attendants and everything. And so when a crisis comes, like the 2008 financial crisis or COVID last year, the airlines uh, have huge fixed obligations, uh, but their revenues can drop dramatically. Or Last year's we saw it as zero. Uh, and so in countries that didn't bail out their airlines, like Mexico, uh, it or Mexico went bankrupt. In Colombia, our airline went bankrupt. I believe LATAM went bankrupt in Chile. And that's just the airlines I cover, but overseas in Europe and Asia, you had a variety of airline bankruptcies as well. And in the U.S., American definitely would have gone bankrupt without government assistance as well. And so it's hard to pick winners. Sometimes airlines have made money long term, like Southwest, uh, ticker LUV has done very well. In Europe, Ryanair has done very well. Uh, but in general, it's hard to pick airlines. It's a capital destructive business. Uh, there's just too much money flowing into it. It's, it's hard to do. Whereas airports, you have a lot of the things that are problems with airlines are turned on their head with airports. With airports, you have low fixed costs. Essentially, once you build the airport and the runways, it costs very little to keep the facility going. Uh, you have high scale, which I'll talk about in a minute. As your revenues grow, you don't your costs don't increase at the same pace. Uh, and generally, you have great balance sheets. All three of the Mexican airport operators had one times or less debt to EBITDA going into the crisis. And so none of them uh, issued stock to, to make it through the crisis, whereas all the airlines and cruise lines and everything had to issue tons of stock to survive. Uh, none of the Mexican airlines issued stock. Uh, I believe Pacifico issued some debt this year, but it's at like 3%, so very cheap funding. Um, the airlines, the airports, excuse me, generally pay out 90 to 100% of their cash flow as dividends. Um, particularly OMAB and PAC in particular, they essentially view themselves as REITs. They, whatever cash is left at the end of the year, they pay it out as dividends. Uh, ironically, OMAB was doing its calculations this year and concluded that it hadn't paid shareholders enough dividends uh, over the past five years. And so it offered a true up, essentially an 8% special dividend, which will be coming early next year uh, to compensate shareholders for not paying uh, as much cash flow as they generated. And over the past five years, OMAB has been paying a 45% dividend uh, annually. And yet even based off that, they said, oh, well, we didn't pay you enough. And so retroactively, they're going up and offering a large special dividend to kind of make up for for that. So that gives you a sense when these businesses, when we're saying that they're trading at like 12 times cash flow or whatever, that cash actually goes out to shareholders. Um, I'd say airports in a way are kind of the 21st century equivalent of the shopping mall. Shopping malls have kind of fallen into decline now with the with the internet, everyone wants to order with e-commerce, uh, but people still like having a, a place to go out and, and see new sites and spend money when they're bored. And airports are great for that because people have two hours until their next flight and they have nothing to do. So they might as well go to the restaurant, get something to eat, go to the gift shop. Uh, airports have tremendous uh, travel. Uh, they're tremendous uh, businesses for selling travel products and we're seeing a lot of luxury brands set up at airports there's some of their their best locations you saw uh high-end 
places like Estelauder, uh, some at LVMH, some of those, uh, their sales dropped 20, 30% last year in large part because the airports closed down and the airports are such a key part of their sales strategy. And we as the airport owners get, uh, we either get a chunk of sales or we get rent from, from those properties. Uh, I also argue that travel long-term has the benefit of being something that fits well with Instagram culture. Um, it seems that the younger generation, millennials and particularly Generation Z, prefer experiences over things. And so going to take those photos in Cancun or Puerto Vallarta or whatnot uh, might stand out more than buying a watch or something would have uh, 10 or 20 years ago. So kind of given the given the current generation's desire for unique experiences, I think travel has a long-term uh, tailwind to it that maybe people have forgotten about with COVID. But when you look at the travel, the traffic results out of Mexico, it's clear that travel has already come back in a big way. Um, yeah, and then finally, as it relates to these airports in particular, there's a much improving safety profile for Mexico and Colombia. 20 years ago, people would have laughed at you, for example, if you said that you were going to Colombia, but now cities like Medellin have become far, far safer than they were a while ago. And so uh, I'd say Colombia in particular is vastly under-touristed. It had just 2 million tourist arrivals in 2019, which is less than a country like Guatemala or Costa Rica, for example, despite uh, being 10 times larger. And so I think there's real potential, particularly for ASR and its Colombian holdings, but also Mexico to a degree to get much more tourism as it becomes more normal for people to take international vacations. Uh, and then let me jump in on scale in particular. I think this is one of the biggest pieces of why people want to own airports. Uh, between 2007, when Pacifico PAC went public, and 2019, which was the last pre-pandemic year, uh, the company grew revenues, it grew aeronautical revenues, excuse me, from 2.8 billion pesos to 10.5 billion pesos, which was a 275% increase over 12 years. Uh, what's interesting, though, is when you look at non-aeronautical revenues, which is things like parking, concessions, advertising, hotels on the property, uh, and other such rentals, this revenue grew from just 664 million to 3.7 billion, or a 468% increase. So uh, from having, and over this period, passengers went up less than 200%. So passengers roughly triple, your aeronautical rev revenues quadruple, and your non-aeronautical revenues go up 6x. Uh, meanwhile, your costs went up uh, less than 3x. And so you're getting more than two to one uh, leverage, essentially, on for every new dollar of costs that you have to pay for security and utilities and whatnot at the airport, you're getting back more than $2 of the, the high margin, the parking, the concessions, the advertising. Uh, just the bigger the your airport gets, the more people you have there, the the more people are willing to pay for like billboards, for, for the hotel. Uh, you'll have better and better brands coming for the retail areas. And so there's a huge, there's a huge scale benefit, something like I don't know, Guadalajara was 5 million passengers a year, and I think it's 16 million over the past 12 years. And so you have more than three times as many people going through there, and that leads to uh, increasing returns on scale. Uh, it's not just linear growth, it's more than linear. Uh, and I note over that period, Pacifico share price went up 200%. However, its total return with reinvested dividends was up nearly 500%. Uh, which gives you a sense of how much value you get out of a 45% annual dividend when the dividend increases at a double-digit rate annually. So I think people might look at the stock price and say, oh, well, it tripled over 12 years, which is good, but not great. But you realize 
oh, it pays a 4 or 5% dividend, and they increase that double digits every year, too, and you start getting a real compounding machine. Um, and then before I hop into the individual stocks, near-term catalysts for this uh, as a whole, we're seeing record traffic, particularly in Mexico. This is still anecdotal, but I talk to people, and I watch a lot of photos of the airports, and we're seeing crazy, crazy custom lines in Cancun, for example, Mexico City, uh, which is kind of the main hub that people go into to go to the other Mexican airports, has had hours wait to go through customs. Like they're just swamped. Uh, there's been shortages of cars at the car rental places, just places. Everything that I'm hearing is that we're going to see huge numbers for December. Those will be reported uh, the first week of January, but it should be a very good holiday season. Uh, I was at a ASR airport here in Monteria, Colombia last year, and it was dead, dead, dead. Uh, ironically, our flight got canceled, and so I was at the airport for like four hours, and there was no one in the food court. At one point, they turned off the AC. Like, it was just dead. And this year, from what I've heard, like, that it's crazy. Like, the, the food court's always full. All the stores are open again. Like, it's just flip a light switch between last year and this year. Uh, yeah, and then... The overview for the Mexican market, you have uh, four major carriers. Um, Aeromexico is the legacy carrier, kind of like your American or Delta or United in the U.S. It went bankrupt in, during COVID. Uh, however, it received government assistance and was recapitalized. Uh, it flies primarily through Mexico City, so it's not integral to anybody's thesis uh, because the Mexico City airport is, is uh, owned by a different airport group that is not publicly traded. Uh, but its presence is good for everyone in general because it doesn't really have a favorite airport. Uh, after that, Volaris has been the most successful discount carrier. Uh, its stock is publicly traded in the U.S. and has been one of the few airlines that has gone up during COVID because uh, it's taken a lot of market share. It loves the Tijuana airport, and Tijuana is owned by Pacifico, BAC. Uh, and Tijuana is interesting because the airport is literally on the border with the U.S. and they built a, a walkway so that people can land in Tijuana and get out in San Diego. And as you may or may not know, San Diego only has one runway at the airport and it's way overbooked. Uh, there's never enough capacity at San Diego. And so Tijuana started taking a ton of market share for people flying to San Diego. And so Valaris is kind of using it as a backdoor hub for San Diego, which has been clever on their part and been very successful. Tijuana has been the fastest growing airport in Mexico thanks to this, and Pacifico has done very well as a result of that. Uh, let's see, Viva Aerobus is uh, the second biggest discount carrier now. It loves the Monterey airport, and so uh, if you're an OMAB shareholder in particular, you want them to succeed. They have funding out of Europe, so they did all right during the pandemic. They have a bunch of new planes coming over the next two years. So that should be a positive catalyst for OMAB in more towards 2023. And then there was, and perhaps will be again, Interjet, another discount carrier. Uh, it went bankrupt uh, during COVID and as of yet has not resumed flying. But last I heard, they might get new financing. So we'll see. Uh, but they, their preferred airport was... Uh, they were always shifting the airport around. They didn't have a clear strategy. And so I'd say ultimately it might be better for the Mexican airports if Interjet stays out of business uh, because the other two uh, clearly preferred airports that are traded by us, that are owned by us. Um, yeah, so that's the overview on Mexico in general. Let's hop into the specific companies. Uh, OMAB, like I said, is my 
that's the one I have call options on now in addition to stock because I, I think the stock set to move over the next few months. Uh, like I said, they announced an 8% uh, special dividend recently, which will come in the first half of 2022. Uh, it's tied to Mexican manufacturing. Monterey is, uh, what is it, one hour, I believe, from the U.S. border uh, by train uh, and certainly by plane. And so anything uh, anything going to the U.S. manufactured in Mexico pretty much has to go through there, which means that Monterrey has been the growth driver for the economy. Over the past 20 years, all of Mexico's GDP growth has been in the north. The south has actually shrank a little bit, whereas the border region has just blasted off because you have Ford, GM, Boeing, Volkswagen, BMW, like uh, who's who, everybody that wants to manufacture cars, planes, medical devices, everything, it's all... Uh, it's all right next to Texas there. So every time a new factory goes in up there, you have more people living in OMAB cities. And then uh, you have you have executives that fly to visit the plants, but then also just friends and family travel. Uh, it's fascinating looking at, at, the, um, at the route map out of Monterrey. Uh, Viva Erebus has 36 different uh, routes from Monterrey, and they fly to some really strange places. Like, I bet almost no one in this call knows where Harlingen is, but it's a tiny little city in southern Texas. It only has like 90,000 people. And yet they have direct uh, service from Monterrey now because Harlingen is like 50% Mexican-American population. And so people just want to fly to visit their family and people don't want to cross the border because it's a pain and so they've got a discount carrier to fly them over the border and you've got several other routes like that where they go to uh, McAllen, Texas and Brownsville, Texas and all these little towns but international flights because there's so many Mexicans on both sides of the border and contrary to what you hear in the news uh, relations have been getting better between Mexico and the U.S. and so there's a uh, northern Mexico is becoming integrated into the U.S. and particularly the Texan economy at record speed, and Monterrey is now 6 million people. It was 2 million people 20 years ago, and they're adding like 100,000, more than 100,000 people a year. And so I think owning their airport, their only airport, is a clear, uh, wonderful way to play uh, the growth of the Mexican economy and manufacturing. In China, what's happened with COVID has only sped that up. It's now a liability to have factories in China, particularly for anything with uh, national security interests. Like, who would build a medical devices factory in China now, given what just happened? And Mexico is uh, one of the worldwide leaders in manufacturing medical equipment. So all that stuff goes there in the future. And that will just be more traffic, more growth, more dividends for OMAD. Moving on, there's Sureste, which is the most complicated and interesting of the three Mexican carriers, uh, because uh, its main asset is the Cancun, Mexico airport. Uh, but then they also own the San Juan Puerto Rico airport, and they also bought six the leases for six airports in Colombia, including Medellin. And so you've got Mexican tourism, uh, Puerto Rico, and Colombia under one roof, which makes it kind of an interest, interesting asset to analyze. Uh, Cancun is still the most important asset. I believe it's 30 million passengers a year now. Uh, if it were a U.S. airport, it would be one of the top ten. That's how big it is, and yeah, it's it's massive. Uh, I I don't love the Cancun asset. I think uh, I think it's a little risky putting all your eggs in one basket in terms of tourism, because there's not really any economy in Cancun aside from tourism. Uh, it, there was really nothing there until the government decided it would be a good vacation uh, hotspot for foreigners. 
so it's kind of an artificial city that's built on on tourism and so far it's worked wonderfully uh but i'd point potential shareholders to what happened with acapulco which as it turns out is an omab airport uh but acapulco was for kind of my grandparents generation the 1960s and 1970s it was the most famous uh the most famous Mexican resort. You had people like Woody Allen do films there. Uh, it was People really liked it. Uh, and if you'd been investing in 1970, you would have probably thought Acapulco was the place to be. Uh, but now it's gotten overrun with crime. And now last year was the only the 20th busiest, 20th busiest airport in Mexico. And so if you had bought in heavily on Mexican tourism uh, to Acapulco, uh, you would have not gotten a good result over the long term. Is that necessarily going to happen to Cancun. No, it's not. Uh, but uh, tourists can be fickle. Uh, once people have been to a place a few times, maybe they decide to try out something else. Maybe they go visit the Pacifico airports in Puerto Vallarta or Cabos. Um, yeah, and so I don't love the Cancun asset, and crime has been rising uh, quite a bit in Cancun. It used to be one of the safest places in Mexico, and in 2019, it surpassed the national murder homicide average in Mexico. And so I understand the government's trying to work on that, and they'll probably get it under control. But yeah, I just see that as a risk, uh, counterbalancing that. The plus side, uh, the Colombian assets are booming. That's actually been the fastest to recover coming out of the pandemic. Uh, if you follow my writing or the other episodes of the show, I'm very bullish on Colombian assets over the next few years. Uh, Medellin's a much nicer city than Bogota uh, to visit. And so I believe and the discount carrier here, Viva, uh, focuses on Colombia, and so as they take market share from Avianca, which went bankrupt during the uh, pandemic, more traffic should shift to Medellin instead of Bogota. Uh, yeah, more tourists want to visit Medellin. The climate's nice. There's more stuff to do. Bogota's big and dangerous and polluted, and so uh, over time, I see traffic shifting to Medellin, which will be good for Sudeste. Uh, yeah, and then you've got other cities where. Uh, I live near the Monterrey airport. I fly out of there all the time. Since I've lived here, they've built they double the size of the terminal. There only used to be like one food stall. Now there's like six restaurants. There's concessions now. There's ATMs. They built a patio to watch the planes come in. Like the because they bought these Colombian airports from Korean owners who were absentee. They were just trying to milk them for cash, but they didn't put any money into them. If you went to the Medellin airport five years ago, it was all dark and dingy. Nobody had replaced the windows in years, so there was no light. and There was no place to get a drink. Like There were no bars or anything for, for the Medellin's airport, which was just crazy. Uh, there was no place. You had to walk to get taxis. Like You couldn't get rideshare. And so Sereste bought these airports that were underperforming and has put a ton of capital into them. Uh, when they bought them, the EBITDA margins were in the 40% range. And long term, the, the EBITDA margin should go up to 70%, which is what uh, all the Mexican airports are. So I think the Colombian assets will be great. Uh, but that will take some time to play out, maybe another two or three years. Uh, they also own the San Juan airport. This is an interesting asset in that San Juan should be a great tourism destination. Uh, it's uh, obviously a U.S. territory, and so people can visit, Americans can visit there without a passport, use dollars, there's more or less people that speak English, so it should it should work as a tourism destination, and there's also no federal income tax, so a lot of hedge fund managers and other wealthy people have been moving there to manage their investments from Puerto Rico and uh, skip all the federal taxation, 
Uh, I know Harris Kupperman, for example, is trying to convince uh, everyone that reads his Twitter and his blog to move to Puerto Rico. And maybe if he's successful, he'll get traffic back up. Uh, that said, two hurricanes battered the island in successive years. And like 20% of their population moved to the mainland from Puerto Rico. And so the airport in 2019 had just 2,003 levels of traffic. Uh, and so if they can turn that around, if Sereste, the local government or whoever can convince people to fly to Puerto Rico, uh, that could be a big asset that I think the market's assigning nearly no value to now. But it's a you-have-to-prove-it-to-me story because I've heard good things about Puerto Rico for years and it hasn't happened yet. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. Hopefully that will work out at some point. Uh, and then turning from Mexico to South America, there's CAP, which is uh, the one that IPO'd in 2018. Primary asset is the Argentine airports, uh, both Buenos Aires airports, the international and domestic, but also, I believe, 40 other airports in that country. Basically, any flights in Argentina involve them. Uh, they also own the capital city of Uruguay, uh, Guayaquil, Ecuador, which anyone going to Galapagos has to fly out of. Uh, some airports in Peru, two airports in Italy, the capital airport in Armenia, and a couple of airports in Brazil. Uh, CAP is very interesting in that the holding company, which is based out of Luxembourg, which is what you own if you buy the CAAP shares, uh, owns, it owns nothing at the CAP level. It owns just the share capital of each country's airports that it owns which means that uh, all of its debt and all of its liabilities and obligations are at the subsidiary level. So if anyone runs into trouble, they can just jettison it, which the market seems to have forgotten about because during 2020, the stock fell to less than $2, uh, which was putting the valuation of the whole company at like $400 million, which was uh, crazy. It was less than one times EBITDA. But people seem to think that that its Argentine airports could go bankrupt, uh, which I guess was possible. Uh, but people didn't realize that you would have still owned the airports in the other six countries, even if uh, even if the Argentine airports had failed, which they didn't end up failing. Uh, but yeah, it was just a crazy valuation. You could have gotten rid of Argentina and the countries and the companies. Other airports were still essentially selling for less than free. Uh, even now, let's say you hate Argentina, you say their government's a basket case, that Argentina's never going to be worth anything, the pesos, rubbish, whatever. So let's say the cap, you just get rid of all their assets in Argentina and say all we care about are the airports in Italy and Brazil and whatnot. Uh, even so, it is trading at a much cheaper EBITDA ratio than the Mexican airports, let alone comparable uh, airport companies in Asia or Europe. So you just say 60% of the business, poof, is gone tomorrow, the stock is still cheap compared to its rivals. Uh, and I, I would argue that the Argentine business actually has a lot of value because uh, a lot of people want to visit Buenos Aires regardless of regardless of the local politics there. Uh, for any passenger arriving in Argentina, they have to pay a flat fee of $51. Notice I said dollars, not pesos. And so it doesn't matter what their local currency does because CAP gets paid in, in hard money regardless. And so the They've actually profited from currency in a way because they receive dollars when passengers arrive there. Uh, but a large chunk of their debt is in Argentine pesos, which have obviously devalued. Uh, but the market seems lost on this. Every time I talk about this company, they just say, oh, but the Argentine and peso going down, inflation, inflation, inflation. It's like, but people don't read the, the filings. They get paid in dollars. So it doesn't really matter what the local currency does. Uh, I think there's also another interesting point to this one. They own one of the airports they own in Brazil. There's been litigation around the contract. 
Cap has been losing money on it on an earnings basis. I believe they're losing $30 million a year on this airport, which bleeds through and makes them look much less profitable and more uh, less EBITDA than they should have. Uh, but in, 2002, in 2023, from my understanding of it, this uh, asset will roll off. So that will add $30 million a year uh, to earnings in EBITDA. Uh, and in particular, that they appeared to be negative earnings in some cases recently. And so, uh, but it was due to an accounting issue, which will go away. And they're suing the Brazilian government to try to get back the lost earnings. But in any case, it's a uh, this overhang on the business will be going away soon. But I don't think most investors have read that far into the diligence. And so, that's a significant catalyst for the company. Uh, if you value it at eight times EV to EBITDA, the stock's worth north of $20 uh, versus $6 today. Uh, and the Mexican airports are at 10 times now. So I don't think eight times is too aggressive. I know people say, oh, it's Argentina. We're not going to pay anything for Argentina. But like I said, even getting rid of Argentina, you can easily value the stock at $10 just on the airports in Italy and Brazil and Ecuador. Uh, yeah, so I, I really like CAP. Uh, only issue, you don't get a dividend there. Uh, it's family run and they've been trying to build the business and so they're always acquiring more airports, more leases, building new terminals. Um, so it's not a cash it's not a cash return story like the other airport operators in Mexico are. with cap uh, they need to grow EBITDA and finally convince the market to give it a real multiple. Uh, but it, it IPO'd in 2018 at $16 and people are looking at it being worth 20 or 25. And the value of the business has gone up since then. I got a 10-year lease uh, extension from Argentina for free, kind of as compensation for uh, the COVID mess. Uh, and then they're fixing their contract issue in Brazil. So uh, long term, I think the stock is worth uh, north of $20. And I know that makes me sound a little bit crazy because the stock was at $2 last year and it's still at $6 now. So uh, shouting a 20 or $25 price target out there sounds a little crazy, but... Uh, that's where I think it's going. Argentina just elected capitalists uh, to their their Congress, so their government's improving. In 2023, they can potentially elect a capitalist president to go with the pro-business Congress that they just voted in last month. Uh, so the political trajectory is improving. Uh, it's still a very difficult place to do business. No one's disputing that. Uh, but the the trajectory is in the right direction now. Uh, and I think I think you'll see a big turnaround in cap in 2022. Their traffic has been slower than some of the other operators to recover. Argentina kept COVID restrictions in place longer, uh, but those are starting to lift now. So I think the stars are aligning nicely for it over uh, the next six months. Uh, I'll open the lineup now for questions, if anyone wants to hop on. Anyone at all? Now I'll, I'll go on to discuss some risks. Oh, Gary. All right. Gary. All right, you should be on, Gary. All right, thanks, Ian. Thank um, you. Glad you're listening. I, hope you had a great Christmas. Uh, thank you. I hope you did too. Yep. Um, I have a question for you, just about Mexico as a alternative to China and as a progressive um, emerging manufacturing economy. Um, I read an article not long ago about lack of um, infrastructure there and lack of supply chain in Mexico as a reason why some companies are not moving there. And I'm curious what your take would be on how Mexico uh, sizes up as an alternative to China going forward. 
Sure. The, yeah, that's a fair question. Uh, was it about one particular industry in general or the whole economy in particular? Uh, boy, uh, it had to do with auto, but I think it also had to do with tech. Okay, yeah, because uh, I saw there was some discussion about trying to build a semiconductor fab in Mexico, uh, which for, the, for you guys who aren't familiar with semiconductors, these are five, ten billion dollar investments, absolutely huge deals, and getting one in Mexico would be a would be a landmark development. However, it seems like no one is willing to put one there because there's just not the other. There's not the other pieces of the semiconductor supply chain in Mexico, and so a company like Intel doesn't have the. They're not going to be the first person to put billions of dollars into it without uh, government subsidies or something to ease the way. Uh, but for an industry like uh, autos, uh, for an industry like autos or, or aviation, you've had companies there for 25 years now since NAFTA. Uh, and so, uh, could you mute your mic for a sec? There's some background noise. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, and so like autos, for example, I was reading that uh, around Monterey, for example, you have more than 90 different companies that are in the auto industry or that make things like tires or uh, door handles or, you know, all the stuff that goes into cars. And because you've had GM and Ford and everybody there for uh, for two decades now. And so the supply chain is very good for certain industries, auto, aerospace, and medical devices, where, uh, what Mexico's doing best at. Home appliances is very big. You've got Whirlpool's been there since the 1990s. Uh, yeah, so I'd say certain industries are very capable of moving more production there. Uh, uh, yeah, I've my microwaves from, micro, from Mexico, my fridge is from Mexico, my TV was made in Mexico. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of appliances that they're already making, but you're right in some things like computers, semiconductors, uh, some of that stuff would need more central government uh, planning subsidies to help with because you need kind of somebody to make the first move in terms of uh, putting up an investment until an Intel or a Taiwan Semi or somebody says, we're going to make this a semiconductor hub. Nobody else is going to move there first. Okay. Yeah, I, I was just curious how that plays into uh, OMAP and the Monterey Airport. Yeah, but uh, yeah, just like I said, you've already got for autos, aviation, uh, medical devices, you've already got all of the big players there. Uh, yeah, Monterey alone, it's GM, Ford, BMW, Siemens, Volkswagen. Like, it's a A-list tier of companies there. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Aaron, you're up. Hey, Ian. That was a, a great recap of uh, of the airport thesis. I really appreciate it. I was hoping that... Uh, and sorry, I forgot my manners. I hope you had a fantastic holiday. No um, problem. Yeah, likewise. Uh, yeah, we're... <laughs> We're currently on, on Christmas Eve. We uh, our three year old tested positive for COVID, so we've been uh, nicely quarantined. Uh, but that's been fun too. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that, but yeah, more family time, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, I was wondering if you'd go into a little bit more detail on the calls that you have uh, on. I believe you said OMAB, and because. That's something that would be interesting to me, and I'm curious if uh, if there's anything 
uh, in terms of calls that you think is attractive now? Mm -hmm. Let's see. Let me bring up the one second. Let me bring up the options chain. Uh, uh, it'll be interesting. I don't know. I haven't seen the exact date that they're paying the special dividend, uh, but any any potential. Let's see. Okay, yeah, it looks like the special dividend is probably going to be before July. So the the longest calls available now are July uh, 2022. Looks like 55. So at the money, it costs uh, four dollars roughly. Uh, yeah, I own January, so I actually have to decide whether I want to exercise them or roll them uh, soon. But the, there's not very much liquidity; is very thin on them. So if you buy them, be pre uh, be prepared that that it may be difficult to sell them. Uh, so keep that in mind. But uh, yeah, I think interest is going to pick up ahead of the special dividend. Uh, yeah, and just if you look, uh, Pacifico hit new all-time highs already. ASR is almost back to all-time highs. OMAB hit what, 61, I believe, in the spring, and it's back down to 54 now, even though its operating results have gotten better and they've announced a special dividend. Uh, so I think you could easily get back to 61 and probably higher over the next couple of months. Uh, yeah, and so that would be what I'd be thinking about in terms of if you're looking at 55 or 60 calls, I think we can get to new all-time highs over the next few months. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Anything else? Yeah, do you babysit? Uh, we have a... Just kidding. Uh, I don't babysit, but we have a, a maid, a nanny, uh, who's with us most of the day. So. Yeah, we, we usually have some help, but uh, <laughs> not this week. No, thanks, Ian. I appreciate it. Have a great one. Yep, you too. Uh, if anyone else wants to hop on, or otherwise I'll go through a couple of risks and questions. Uh, that I commonly get on the airport companies. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, one risk we hear a lot about with the Mexican operators is uh, AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who's the president. Uh, when he came to office, uh, Mexico had already been building a new international airport in Mexico City. Uh, he canceled the airport when it was already partially built, uh, squandering, according to his critics, several billion dollars uh, for the airport in progress. Uh, he said that the contract had been given out illegally to Carlos Slim and other powerful tycoons uh, and that the airport was, was illegal and that it also ran afoul of environmental standards. And he's pushed an alternate plan uh, utilizing a smaller secondary airport along with trying to get more capacity out of the Mexico City airport. Uh, the bonds associated, uh, the Mexico City airport has its own bonds and these fell sharply. And uh, people viewed this as a problem for the airport operators as a whole, because right? if he meddled in the affairs of the Mexico City airport, why wouldn't he do it with the other ones? And I think that was a fair question in 2019, uh, but I still see people highlighting it as a risk in 2021. I don't think it matters anymore. Uh, for one, the airport operators have to renew their contracts. Not renew, that's too harsh of a word. Uh, they have a new arrangement with the government every five years where they say this is what we're going to spend on our airports in terms of uh, new capital expenditures. Like if we're going to build a new runway, or we're going to build a hotel at the airport, or we're going to build more parking or whatever. And in return for new investments to make the airports nicer, uh, the government lets them raise fares, uh, how much they charge for each passenger that comes through. And the airports have to approve these every five years. 
And as long as they keep doing that, they get to operate their leases through 2048, I believe the leases expire. Uh, and so there'd been a lot of concern that AMLO was going to give them bad leases uh, because he'd, he'd meddled with the Mexico City airport. Uh, but then in 2019, uh, Pacifico had its new five-year contract, and it was much better than analysts had expected. Pacifico stock went up 20% in two days after their five-year deal, was the new one was announced. Uh, and so I see people still highlighting AMLO as a risk. Like he's... He, he's running some some uh, policies towards the energy industry that people don't like. Uh, he's kind of a populist character who has some weird views. Like He doesn't leave Mexico as president. All the foreign leaders have to come and visit him there. He refuses to speak English. He's not kind of the best spokesman for the country, but uh, I don't see him as a problem for the airport industry in particular. And in a way, it's good because Mexico is a left-wing president now, and that means it's likely in 2025, I believe, when they vote next, that the next president will be more to the center or to the right, because normally power tends to swing uh, like a pendulum there. And so you've got a left-wing president now who's been friendly to the airports, and so likely the next president will be as well. So I see very little political risk through 2030 for Mexico. Um, and also another negative that people say that, point out that I say is a positive. Mexican stocks have been in a bear market since 2013. If you bought the EWW ETF for Mexico in 2013, uh, in dollar terms, you would have lost half your money between 2013 and today. And so I would say it's actually been incredible that the airports have gone up uh, dramatically over that spin. Uh, because, I mean, imagine if the S&P were down 50%, you would be happy that your stocks that you owned had gone up at all. Uh, so I see people saying, oh, the, the Mexican stock market's been a laggard. But I'd say, hey, after an eight-year bear market, maybe Mexican stocks will go up, particularly now that they've got the tailwinds with manufacturing and the growth with the U.S. So that's something people see as a negative. I see it as a positive. On currency, uh, their costs are all in pesos. Uh, most of their fares they collect are in pesos, admittedly. So they don't have the advantage that CAP does, where they charge in dollars and pay their employees in pesos. Caps the winner from currency devaluation, uh, but the Mexican airports they they don't really have to pay for anything in dollars, so I don't see currency as a problem. If the Mexican peso goes down, you'll just get more tourists. I mean, whenever a currency devalues, it makes travel cheaper. So a weaker peso in particular is good for uh, ASR and, and Pacifica. And actually, it's good for OMAB as well. If the cost of labor goes down in Mexico, you'll get more factories. So I don't worry about currency at all. Uh, crime is a problem in some areas, like Cancun, as I talked about. However, it's gotten much better in other parts of the country. Like Ciudad Juarez was the dangerous, uh, and the, that's the city on the border with El Paso, Texas. Uh, it's a significant manufacturing center, and OMAP has an airport there. It was the most dangerous city in the world, 2010 to 2012. Uh, I think that peaked in 2012 when three FBI agents were murdered in broad daylight in El Paso by uh, Juarez gang members. Uh, the government spent a lot of money and time uh, bringing that uh, to heel, and now Warius has a lower uh, murder rate than Indianapolis or Baltimore, uh, which isn't to say it's crime-free, but going from uh, worst city in the world to a safer than significant U.S. cities is, is an achievement. And like I said, OMAB owns that airport, so obviously going from a total no-go zone to being uh, uh, not the most dangerous place in Mexico uh, is a significant improvement. You've seen big improvements in other OMAB, Monterey in particular has gotten safer. So, uh, Crime was kind of the biggest issue when I started owning these companies in 2016, 2017. Go back and read the comment sections on my old Seeking Alpha articles if you don't believe me. Uh, 
But interestingly, with all the tackler stuff, with the, the opioid uh, scandals in the U.S. and the fentanyl scandal in China, a lot of the attention in terms of narco problems has shifted to, to fentanyl and to the, the opioid producers. And so uh, actually Mexico's kind of gotten off. Uh, the blame has shifted elsewhere, which has been good for Mexico. I'm not sure if that's deserved, but uh, <laughs> whatever, it works for us. Uh, finally, I'd point to virtual, virtue signaling. There's a lot of uh, talk about the high carbon footprint of air travel. Uh, people are saying that they're not they're going to not fly or uh, demand carbon-free air transportation, which is probably quite a few years away until the batteries are ready. Electric airplanes, I don't think, are going to be a thing for quite a few years. Uh, but to that, I would just say look at the travel trends of you see what's popular on TikTok and Instagram. Young people are still flying a ton. Uh, it may be popular to say that, that we're going to fly less, but uh, I'll believe it when I see it in the numbers. So those would be, oh, and potentially there could be another pandemic or something. But uh, as I said in uh, in my uh, earlier in, in my discussion, that uh, we just went through a, a time where the travel industry went to zero passengers for six months, essentially. And none of the Mexican airport operators even had to raise capital. That's how good their balance sheets were. And so uh, if these assets went through a six-month period where there was no travel, uh, I'm not too worried about another pandemic. Or maybe there's a terrorism attack. Or... There's always black swan things that can hit the travel industry. But I'd say these are battle-tested now. If, you're, if your travel stock got through COVID without uh, having to raise any debt or issue any equity, I'd say it's good to go. So that would be my response to the most common criticisms I hear of these investments. And uh, if anyone else would like to come on the line, the line is open again. All right, half day. Half day, you're there. Oh, hi. Um, thank you for, for this wonderful presentation. I have a question on CAP. So you uh -huh. mentioned it is family owned. So uh -huh. um, I, I didn't notice this before. So um, uh, can you elaborate more on this family ownership in terms of uh, how much do they own? What kind of family? Um, how can a family own this thing? I mean, I've never heard of a family owned airport or group of airports. So what's their track record or their their um, style of running this airport group and secondly um this uh, they own airports across different countries and um, this is also fairly new to me so when they want to so is there any logic in terms of the airports they collect you mentioned they own something in brazil and also own in italy this seems this looks to be a bit far far in terms of the airports they own. So how do they come to this collection? And okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe those two first. Okay, yeah. so those are very closely related. Uh, yeah, so let's see. Yeah, and so 1998, the company was founded, it was founded, uh, I don't remember the name of the family. I know it starts with E, but it's not coming to me uh, offhand. But the the head of the family bought the airport in Armenia, uh, the country of Armenia. Uh, where uh, what is the name of the family? I'm not sorry. I'm not. I'm not remembering the name of the family. Uh, but the family is Armenian. They bought the airport in in our 
Armenia, Armenia, uh, and uh, but then much of the family tree had moved to Argentina, and in 1999, the government in Argentina wanted to to sell off their airports to raise capital, and so this family that was that already owned the airport in Armenia uh, bid on it, and they were the best bidder, and so. They got the the Buenos Aires airports, and then the government over time was happy with that and gave them more and more concessions in Argentina. And then in the 2010s, they started offering their services to buy other airports in South America. They basically said, uh, if you're a government and you're strapped for cash, uh, talk to us. We're in the market to buy airports. And so over time, just as as countries have run into financial troubles or they've elected uh, conservative governments or whatnot, they wanted to liberalize their airports. Uh, they've had the opportunity to buy airports in Ecuador and Brazil and Peru and Italy. Uh, but yeah, the, I would say the, the family is from Armenia, and so that's why they own the airport there. And then they've lived in Argentina uh, for several generations. And so... Yeah, so that's their core competencies. Uh, but yeah, it's possible they could get over their heads in terms of going into markets that they don't really understand. Uh, I mean, I think they want to be a global airport operator. They're they're always looking to buy airports in Europe or Asia as well. Uh, prior to the pandemic, they were looking to, to operate an airport in UAE, I believe, somewhere in the Middle East, but it got scrapped due to the, the pandemic. Uh, but yeah, so... I'd say that they're looking to, to build their empire, and so far they've done a good job. They're the largest airport operator in the world in terms of the number of airports that they run. Um, but yeah, there's there has been some concern that it's a family that owns it, and if the family could have different interests than the private shareholders. Uh, some people are saying that the family might try to take it private during COVID and kind of... Uh, uh, maybe they could have tried to buy it out for 4 or $5 a share last year, which would have been very unfriendly for outside shareholders. But thankfully that didn't happen. Um, oh, thank you. Um, I, I know it's a bit, um, it's, uh, it's, it's an unfair question um, uh, to, to come up with answers on the spot. Um, and, and secondly, um, I have a question on how to value airports in general. Um, can we can we view them as REIT or like land holdings or like real estate such that we should not count the um, amortizations and uh, depreciation? So I'm I'm just thinking from a cash flow perspective, um, is um, is it better? I'm I'm struggling. I'm trying to uh, uh, choose which metric should I use. Um, there were uh, free cash flow, and then there there is the Warren Buffett competing version of owners owners cash. They call it, which does not um, which will add back the um, amortization and uh, uh, appreciation, but does uh, deduct the uh, capex which is important to deduct so i just want to hear your view on uh is it a good metric to use uh the buffett's uh, owner earning in airport context thank you yes i actually i should have covered this in my presentation uh, i forgot to uh so i thank you for highlighting that uh yes you're right um 
a lot of investors like to look at earnings, but earnings can be not uh, earnings can be deceptive with the airports because, like you said, there's a lot of depreciation, uh, depreciation and amortization. Uh, however, these uh, this is a very uh, complicated figure with airports because the price that the lease was originally sold at uh, is what gets depreciated. Uh, so like, to give one concrete example, uh, Sureste bought the, the Colombian airports for just $250 million, uh, the Medellin and the other airports in Colombia. Uh, but I'd argue that that price was far too low uh, because it was a distressed asset when it was purchased because they had terrible margins. The previous landlord had done nothing to maintain the properties for the previous decade. And so the airports were in poor condition and there had been airlines that had been leaving. Uh, and so I'd say that these airports sold for a unfairly low price, which means that they have very low amortization on the asset, uh, as you can imagine, when you're only depreciating $250 million over 30 years. Uh, so their, their DNA cost is very low, whereas an airport operator that paid say if you'd paid, say, $2 billion for that same asset, then you'd be depreciating $200 million a year, $150 million a year for the same asset. And so in that case, if you had paid more up front, then your earnings would look really bad. Uh, but if you had paid a really low price, then your earnings would look really good. Uh, but it doesn't matter to someone who's buying the stock today because the cost was in the past. Like the airports, the Mexican airports, for example, were purchased in, in the early 2000s. And so they're still depreciating, but no one investing in the stock today cares what price OMAB or PAC paid for an airport in 2004. Like it's not relevant. And so earnings are deceptive for the airports. Uh, traditionally, people use enterprise value to EBITDA as the, as the preferred metric. If you read bank uh, analyst reports on the airports, that's the metric people use uh, because that gets rid of uh, depreciation, amortization, and interest. Uh, I think that's also important to highlight because the Mexican airports tend to have net cash. Uh, but if you look at the, some of the overseas airports, the European airports have four or five times debt to EBITDA. In many cases, Sydney, before it was acquired, when it was publicly traded, was seven times debt to EBITDA. And so if you're just looking at earnings, the Mexican ones uh, seemed expensive uh, because they were, they were holding net cash. Uh, but once you once you brought interest in the equation, it changed the picture dramatically. So I'd say EBITDA, EBITDA is what you want to look at. Traditionally, the Mexican ones traded around 15 um, I think they're at 11 or 12, assuming uh, we're looking at about 10% traffic higher now than 2019. So using that as the baseline, they're around 11 times EV to EBITDA now. Uh, OMAB's a little cheaper. Uh, so that's, what, 30% upside uh, back to normal median valuation, assuming no further growth. And the Mexican airports hit 20, 18 to 20 times in 2017. So that'd be kind of the peak valuation. And that would be in Pacifica. That'd be a two twenty five stock price and like three hundred for ASR. So kind of an OMAB. It would be over a hundred. So that would be kind of the peak of what would be the best we could hope for. If like let's say fingers crossed, COVID totally goes away and Mexico is doing well, that would be kind of the highest we could get in two thousand two twenty two twenty three. Um, but like you said, also free cash flow is a good metric. The OMAP and Pacifico in particular, they base their dividend policy directly on how much free cash flow they generated. And so the, that's what management's looking at when they decide our dividend. And so if you own it as a growth and income play, just watch the free cash flow line because that's what drives uh, how big our annual dividend increase will be.
Oh, okay. And I have a final question on the infrastructure.、Uh, this harkens back to Gary's question initially. So,、um, is there、um, you talked about airports? Is there is the railway a potential play or investable, or even accessible to be invested by public investors in Latin America? Okay. Yeah. So the main. Railroad for northern Mexico is the Kansas City Southern ticker KSU in the U.S.,、uh, which I should have owned. This was an oversight, an error on my part that I didn't own it.、Um, but then Blackstone, Blackstone attempted to acquire it last year and set off a bidding war, and the price doubled. And ultimately, it didn't end up getting acquired because they decided to stay independent.、Uh, but now the valuation has gone way up because I guess had the the fact that it got into a Let me bring up the stack chart. One second.、Uh, let's see, Kansas City. Oh, did it get acquired? I don't see.、Uh, yeah. Anyway, so the main railroad had been publicly traded,、um, but yeah, it got in a bidding war, and that was actually part of the reason why I was so bullish on on Obab last summer was. Uh, even at the height of the pandemic, you had private equity coming in to buy the main Mexican railroad.、Uh, there's one more Mexican railroad that also serves manufacturing. It's、uh, part of Grupo Mexico. It was spun off、uh, a couple of years ago. The ticker escapes me now. I think it's Ferromex. If you search for Grupo Mexico railroad, it will come up. It has stock that's publicly traded in Mexico. It's not listed in the U.S.,、uh, but I haven't done enough work on it to have a, an investable opinion on that one. There is no desire、um, on the government's part to to put up more railroads, like either for logistics or cargo or for for like human.、Uh, I think the railroad the railroad network that's there through Kansas City Southern is probably enough to support the country in the same way that like the U.S. only has a couple of major railroads now because they've consolidated.、Uh, But it's important to realize the railroads and airports are—they're complementary. They're not、uh, competitors. Like you, something like the refrigerators or automobiles or whatnot will be moved by a railroad to the U.S.、Uh, but then, every time somebody builds a new plant to build more refrigerators or air conditioners or whatever in Monterrey, then you're going to have thousands of new workers that move there, and then they fly using that airport to visit their friends and family. And then you'll have more executives from the U.S., more people from Detroit flying in to visit their factory.、Uh, and I know it's business travel, and people are worried about business travel. But I don't think you run a factory in another language、uh, over a Zoom call from Detroit or wherever. So I think the business travel by American and Canadian executives to visit their plants in Mexico will come back as strong as ever. And then, yeah, like I said, Monterey's. The population's tripled over the past fifty years, and it's the fastest-growing city in Mexico still. So, just having more and more people there means that more people use the airport for、uh, leisure purposes as well. Oh, interesting. The reason why I ask is because railroads、uh, kind of competing with airports. Air,、uh, real high-speed rail traffic is taking share, taking some share from air, domestic air traffic. In China, because、um, due to its density, it's very developed,、um, its cheapness, and uh, uh, it also saves a lot of. It's very fuel efficient. That's why I'm asking. Maybe in the U.S., you can't build railroads due to all sorts of 
like zoning or very expensive to get the land. But I wonder if Mexico or other Latin American countries would be good uh, to 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 build more railroads to um, to to compete, if not with air traffic, but maybe uh, high highways. I don't know. Yeah, as far as I know, there's no passenger rail uh, in Mexico. The government is wanting to build a passenger rail. Actually, yeah, I should have mentioned this for Sudeste. Uh, the government wants to build a railroad uh, between Cancun and some of the the Mayan uh, ruins, like in Tulum and whatever, uh, in the south of Mexico. And the government is planning on investing in a railroad there. Uh, so that might... That might take some transportation away from Cancun, but I'm not sure. But uh, no one's really using passenger rail as an alternative to to air travel in in uh, Mexico or in Texas on the other side of the border. Uh, the airport's main competition is buses. Buses are cheap and efficient in Mexico. Uh, however, the airlines, particularly the discount airlines, are priced at the same fare as buses usually, and so they've been winning a lot of uh, market share, and I think there's a lot more market share that they can take in future years. Uh, that's what the high margin part of the airline business is the international travelers, uh, like when Americans or Canadians or uh, Asian people visit an airport, they'll buy souvenirs, they'll rent a car, they'll stay at the hotel. Uh, whereas when a Mexican traveler uses the airport, usually they just uh, buy their ticket and go wherever they're going. So the big driver in terms of uh, profit margins is international tourists. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Erin. You're back up. Sorry, I had a little bit of trouble there. Uh, no I just had a, a quick follow-up on the, on the OMAB option uh, thing, now that I had a chance to pull it up. Um, so I think the special dividend, if I calculated it, correctly was going to be something like four dollars it was a nine percent dividend i believe yeah that's right should be around four dollars depending on the exchange rate the day they send it out but yeah four dollars give or take a few cents so it's because the options are calculated in five dollar increments and assuming that it's happening at some point in july that might make a, a significant i'm just trying to think of how to calculate for that in terms of of uh, of buying an option, I believe for special dividends that are larger than a company's regular dividend, that the option strike will be adjusted, meaning that if it's a fifty five dollar option, it will become a fifty one dollar option. I believe, but I am not a hundred percent certain. And sometimes it's up to the the people at the options board of exchange to decide. So that's not a hundred percent gospel and definitely try to find a second opinion uh, before investing any serious capital there. But I believe the option strike should be adjusted for because they're specifically saying it's a special dividend return of capital situation uh, rather than just a regular dividend. Got it. And then the other thing I was looking at is uh, the July 22 calls happened to catch my eye, and it looks like the last one traded at $8.20, which is probably means it hasn't traded in a while. But even the the bid, sorry, you could sell. It looks like you can sell a put for uh, for four dollars and fifty cents, and that seems to be 
you know, at a $55 strike, you could get at least $4.50 for it. And that seems to be an interesting, well, at least to, and I'm, I'm horrific with options. So I guess instead of me telling, saying that it looks good, I'm, I'm curious whether that looks like something that might be interesting in terms of the, uh, the risk reward. Yeah, that would be what, 10% over six months, just over six months. So yeah, nearly a 20% uh, return. And yeah, you've, assuming that they adjust the strike like they should, uh, it would be what a cost basis of 47 if you got hit, which, yeah, I mean, 20% annualized yield or you get the stock six, seven bucks a share below where it's trading now seems attractive. Yeah, and and if you get it somewhere between that four fifty to eight ninety where it's it's quoted at, that you know, that obviously improves the return. Okay. Yeah, Thank you. yeah, definitely don't put any orders out at the bid because the bid ask is the mile wide. So use the mid form <laughs> as your guide, or maybe shade it like if it's say it's bid, let's say bid four dollars, ask six dollars. Try putting like five ten or five twenty, like a little over the line. And then if it sits out there for an hour or two and nobody fills it, then put it at the exact midpoint. And sometimes with these, with their super liquid, just leave an order out there for a while, and somebody will run into it and and trade it. But but yeah, be careful when there's there's limited liquidity. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Of course. All right, Sam, you're up next. Hey, Ian, thanks. Um, I, I didn't fully hear everything, so apologize, um, you know, if I'm asking this. Somebody else already asked this question. No problem, um, go ahead. But, uh, like, for OMAB and, and, you know, the other airports, like, what's, like, your base case, you know, three-year, five-year IRR on that? All right. If I was to just buy and hold and, you know, put it in my IRA, uh, you know, because of those dividends. Um, so what would you say for that? Yeah, sure. So I think long term, over time, these will trade at 15 times EV to EBITDA. Sometimes they'll be 12 times. Sometimes they'll be 18 times, depending on whether politics are good or bad in Mexico at the moment or whatever with the virus. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But I say long term, your baseline is 15 times EV to EBITDA. And then I think EBITDA can grow at 12 to 15% a year would be kind of my, my midpoint down the fairway, I guess. Um, yeah, and so I think now you're looking at, um, I think, 11, 12 times, maybe a little lower in OMAB on where 2022 EBITDA should be. Um, so maybe 30% upside from here to the normal valuation and then your 12 to 15% annual growth uh on top of that would be that would be my base case for what I'd be looking for. Gotcha. Okay. Anything else? Thank you. Anything nope. else for you? All right. Well, thanks for calling. Yep. Anyone else want to hop on? All right. Well, we've been going here for a little while, so I think, and I'm sure everyone's got stuff to do. New Year's coming up, so thank you all for joining me. I really appreciated it, and you all had great questions. And look forward to talking to you all again next week. And so, talk to you later.